So open your Bibles, grab your scriptures or grab your Bible, your phones, whichever's appropriate, and go with me to Acts chapter 5. This evening, we're going to, I hope, be helpful. We are going to kind of conversate around two pieces around the Holy Spirit we don't hear much about. But I want to read this passage first. It's Acts chapter 5, a passage we haven't exegeted yet. And um, I'm reading from verse 1. I'm reading from the NIV, but the Scripture is up there if you can follow along. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife, Sapphira, and also sold a piece of property. We had just read the previous verse that Joseph, a Levite who became known as Barnabas, sold some land and laid all the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira kind of get caught up in the spirit of generosity. They super amped. But what they do is they sell a piece of property and then lie. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. What were they doing? They were misrepresenting what they did. They said, look, we gave all this money, actually kept some back for themselves. Could they keep some back for themselves? Oh, heck yeah. So what's the big deal? That They just lied. I mean, it's not a big thing, is it? I mean, certainly God's not going to act on a lie. I mean, it's a little old white lie. We said we sold it for that amount of money. We actually didn't. We kept some for ourselves. Uh, Right, next chapter. Well, God actually acts. So Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? Well, what did he do? He lied. In an era of moral relativism, in a culture of it's not my fault, that's not a big deal. Why on earth is there a whole portion of the Scripture dealing with a lie? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear, as you can imagine, everyone thinking, dang, I lied yesterday. Am I I going down? I mean, this is a big moment right here. All right, great fear sees all. It's a great time to have everyone repent. I mean, this is a great meeting moment. It's the dream for us charismatic preachers, not charismatic by personality, but by theological conviction. This is all those who've lied this week, come and kneel before the Lord. You know, it's like ideal. (laughs) If you don't think that's funny, you haven't been around charismatics very long. (laughs) Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me. Is this piece, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, he said, that's the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit? But all she did was lie. It's a big deal. We, we know they're white lies. We know that lies aren't that important. We use them all the time to misguidedly defend ourselves, protect ourselves, pretend that we're something we're not really. It's the absence of authenticity. How could you conspire to test the Spirit of God? Listen, 
The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will bury you also. At that moment, she fell down at her feet and died. Then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her besides her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, I want to connect that to these two ideas that we're just gonna take a little bit of time and hopefully during your table communities this week or next, you'll drill down on these ideas. But they're not passages that are taught very often. That's awkward. I mean, I've kind of been aching on this all week, wanting some of the other teachers in the community to teach on this, because it's not cool, you know? But, but, But I think there's a reason that we have to understand, and I think the reason is that God knows what happens when we let these little things creep their way into the community. This was a, can I use it inoffensively, a virginal community. This is brand new. This is like days old. That this is hot off the press. And so letting this leak its way into the community, God said, this is not a good thing. And we'll see why in just a moment. Clark Pinnock, who is one of the authors I've been reading, he says, God cares about the healing of individuals, communities, nations, and the cosmos. There it is there. God cares about it. And anything that interrupts that, anything that gets in the way of God's love and care, the good news of the gospel, transforming lives, reconciling relationships, uh, changing nations, anything that interrupts that, God deals with ever so seriously. Now, can I have a fatherly moment here with you? In a rampantly individualistic world, Everything we do, we consider exclusively through how it affects me. Am I the real me? Is this my true self? Am I getting self-actualized? None of that is the biblical story. Everything that God is concerned with and committed to is that. If there's a good summary, it's that. God's love, for God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe in Him, Sorry, the old King James, it pops up every now and again. Shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. God cares about that and He wants a community of people where there is no interruption, obstacle. There are no hazards that prevent that from happening. And God looked, I believe, at Ananias and Sapphira and to the one He said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. To the other, He said, you've tested the Holy Spirit. And God took their life away. He said, Christy, do you really think that happened? Oh yeah, it does. In 40 years of preaching, I've seen God do that. Take people out. Now, thank goodness I don't have to make the call of whether they dwell eternally with Him or in judgment. That's not my call. But I've seen people prophetically challenged by God. And I don't have time to tell you the whole story. There's one particular one where literally because it was a friend of mine and I was involved, it was one of the leaders in his church and God literally said, you have I think three days to repent and change or I will deal with you. And he basically stuck his finger in God's face, dared God and three days later he died in in a car crash without a mark on his body. This is true. This is real. And anything that gets in the way of that 
the love, the care, the good news of God going to individuals, to communities, nations, and into the cosmos, God frowns upon and he gives us the sublime example to ensure that we understand this is not just individual. I, I, you know, I make a decision. I lie to the Holy Spirit and that's fine. I just get away with it. No, no, there are implications that God frowns upon. Now, the two passages I want to look at, and again, cannot do justice to them. I'm asking for grace because each one of these are a well you can drill into. The one is in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, which is that one there, it says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. I think it's all feeding into the same story. Let nothing get in the way of the Holy Spirit. Do not quench it. And the second one, which we'll get to, is do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Hey, it's not easy. But actually, it's incredibly liberating. So I'm going to read to you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And Paul writes this great letter to a great church. And he says this, Now I ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you, there's that word again, in the Lord and who admonish you or exhort you or, or, or invite you into a higher call. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encouraging the disheartened. See the heart of God. He cares. Encourage those who are disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. There it is again. God cares for the individual and the community and the nation and the cosmos. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject what is evil. Now, what on earth do we do with that? So when I first read it, I assumed, incorrectly, just turn me down a little bit, Marco. I feel like I'm fighting with the microphone. I've got a loud voice. I, I kind of assumed it had like a, a, a water, a, a river, a sea, an ocean metaphor to it. But actually, when I drilled down on it, I realized that it wasn't that at all. The whole idea here in the original Greek is fire. Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, apologist, said this. Now, I never say that word properly, so forgive me ahead of time. Christianity is incendiarism. Okay, all right, who can do better than that? Just saying. Christianity is fire setting. A Christian is a person set on fire. A Christian is a person set on fire. He as an apologist, a philosopher, a thinker, an author, that was his conclusion. A Christian is a person set on fire. Now, trying to join all these dots together in some sweet sequence, it means this. Anything that quenches or puts out the fire. Uh, we bought one of those little Amazon blankets, you know, and you put it right by the back door. But if there's a fire on the stove, do not pour water on it. You know, go and get the blanket and it's supposed to shut the fire down. I haven't tried it. Don't want to try it. Hope it works. I like my kitchen. <laughs> and so the idea here is do not put out 
stifle the work of the fire of God. Anything that might hinder that, he argues, is to be dealt with at all costs. God is fire. The heavenly Father is referred to as a consuming fire. Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I know for some of you it's a weird idea. I get it. The Spirit came with tongues of fire. Now one author said this, so we are people who are filled with zeal, passion, enthusiasm, and power. Zeal, passion, enthusiasm, and power. When the Spirit of God comes to live within us, and I can testify to that for almost five decades, the Spirit of God comes into me and the fire of God, the passion of God grips my soul. I I have a reason to live beyond getting a bigger house with more cars and a bigger garage and a fancier job and the corner office. No, there's a zeal. Zeal for your house consumes me. The Scripture speaks of Jesus. And so again, the author writes, do not quench, stifle, put out, snuff out the fire of God that rests inside of you. Well, is there an example, Chris? Is there maybe a story that will help me understand this better? I'm glad you've asked this question. There is a great account in the Old Covenant of a man called Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. Israel wanted a king just like all the other nations. And God says to him, it's not going to be good. It's not going to have a good result. We want a king. And so God reluctantly through the prophet looks around and identifies a young man who the Bible says is head and shoulders above everyone else. He's a good guy. He doesn't want to be king. That's a good sign. He finds reason not to be king. Very helpful. And then the prophet says this to him in 1 Samuel chapter 10. The prophet says to him, and after that you will go to Chebiah of God where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet, this is the prophet speaking in the future tense. You will meet a procession or a company of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres and timbrels and pipes and harps being played before them and they will be prophesying and the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you. Who is He? He's not a pastor. He's not a preacher. He's just an ordinary dude who was looking for his dad's donkeys and the prophet found him. Just like you. And the Spirit of God will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them. And that comes the line, and you will be changed into a different person. That is a profound passage. It's profound for a number of reasons. One, the powerful transformation of the Spirit of God on your life. We all carry family of origin stories. We all carry bruisings and injuries and uh, experiences that have, that have hurt us, etc., etc. But this moment, this young emerging leader, the, the prophet says to him, you will change and be a different person. Now that's a crisis in an age of authenticity. Who's the real Saul? Is it the before or after? because he's gonna be different. So if authenticity is a high virtue for you and you want to be the authentic you, you've got a crisis. 
because you're probably going to resist the workings of the Spirit because it means you're going to come out the other side looking different. That's a beautiful story, a beautiful passage. It seems to promise that this guy's got a great future ahead of him. Everything is laid out. He's gonna be Israel's first king. The Spirit of God has already come on him as a young guy, just like you are, guys and gals. And he knows the sweet presence of God. He's been in the company of the prophets we worship, compels him into God's presence. And as he prophesies, the Spirit of God twists and changes his soul. And it's a good story until it isn't. A few years later, There's another young man that begins to emerge on the political landscape and is a shepherd called David. And David is proving himself to be a remarkable warrior, poet, writer, author. And there comes a moment here where the people are so enamoured with David. Remember Saul is king, but David has just beaten the Philistines. And when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistines, the woman came out of the towns to Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. This is a great celebration. This is, you've just won the political Super Bowl. Everyone is out, waving banners, singing songs like my Liverpool football club today who won the Karakoa Cup. It said, and Saul was slain, has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, imagine for a moment a good father, a good leader. He rejoices that the guy who is going to come and take over from him, the emerging leader, is actually better than him. But not Saul. Saul was very angry and this refrain displeased him greatly. They credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me, only a thousand. I was mulling over this idea. What quenches the Holy Spirit in my life? Again, forgive me for referencing my age, but I've just seen many leaders in the four and a half decades that I've been leading. And there comes a time, dear friends, up until that point in time, they know the presence of God, they've encountered Him in worship, they have prophesied, they've been catalytic in the goodness that is God and His gospel. And there comes a time where they draw a line in the sand and they say, no more. I'm done changing. I'm done paying a price. And pictures flash to my mind of people as I tell the story. Somewhere along the line, they stopped changing. It's not a sin in the classic sense, as we'll see in just a moment. It's just a line drawn that I don't want to submit to God's dealings anymore. And so with Saul, jealousy begins to rise up in his heart. Instead of the excitement of, they're going to get a better king than I am? I, the church Merrill and I led in South Africa, the first one we planted, we grew it to a thousand. Handed it over to a young punk, a 28-year-old businessman, amazing man. He grew it to two and a half thousand. If I'd drawn a line in the sand, I would have been so pissed. Well, he didn't do the hard yards when, we, when you plant a church. He didn't pour his life and soul into it when there was no one and setting out the chairs. He didn't do all of that. 
So how come he gets two and a half thousand and I only got a thousand? Or, oh God, you are so good. You've given this community a greater gift than the gift I have. There's more blessing because of Roar or Rory than there was because of me. This is a good moment. Saul said, absolutely not. I am jealous. They are singing about David as if David is greater than me. That is unbelievable. Bitterness grips his heart. A spirit of competition rises up inside of him. And the Spirit of God is quenched. And then this horrible little verse, I don't know if we understand it at all, says, and God gave him an evil spirit. An evil spirit came to Saul. No idea what that means. But what I do know is there comes a time in all of our lives where we have to choose God's ongoing transformation or lying in the sand, no more. No more. The church has hurt me. The only person the church has never hurt is someone who gets saved tonight. That's the only person. Meryl and I love each other deeply, but no one has hurt me like she has. And no one has hurt her like I have. It's called covenant. This pious Cinderella-esque idea of living in a world, church world, where I never pick up injury does not exist anywhere. And we're not flippant with it. Those are sober moments of repentance and confession. And I'm so sorry I hurt you as we break bread together. But please don't let that be the line you draw in the sand. No more. I'm done. I'm out of it. And like Saul, you slowly, but see, because if the fire doesn't burn slowly but surely, what happens, it gets replaced by cynicism and skepticism and criticism. And that's exactly what happened to Saul. Rather than celebrate this great moment of this leader who would take Israel further, he quenched the fire of God inside of him with his own inability to keep changing. The second big idea is in Ephesians chapter four. And each one of these, as you can imagine, deserves their own conversation and study and prayers. But let me just read this to you. Um, Here we go, here we go. Chapter four, we'll pick up in verse 29. Are you still with me? Okay, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. It's pretty definitive, isn't it? But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. It may be of benefit to those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. There it is. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit. With whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of bitterness. There it is. Get rid of rage and anger. There it is. Get rid of brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to each other. Why? Because the gospel shows that God cares for individuals, communities, nations, and the cosmos. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave me. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrificial to God. You know, 
This is not just a talk for me. I don't know why, but I have pondered much. Maybe I'm going to die soon. I don't know. But I've pondered much of the moment, and who knows what heaven's going to be. We don't know all that stuff. But for the metaphor for just a moment, imagine in 20 years' time, you're in your 40s. And I'm with Jesus, leaning over the edge, watching you. What will we see? Will we see a Saul who got hurt, disappointed, spirit of competition, drew a line in the sand and say, no more, and quench the fire of God inside of them? Or, as we'll see in just a moment, someone who grieved the Holy Spirit. Again, they just lied. Really, God, you killed them because they told a lie? That seems a little excessive. No, I have a pure church and I do not want things that will quench my fire or grieve my spirit. I will deal with them. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity or false talk or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, no impure, no greedy person, such a person is an idolater. Let me go through it very quickly. In the screen behind me, I've taken the passages, just that. And I've said, all right, what does Paul mean when he says, don't, Grieve the Holy Spirit. It's a very beautiful word, isn't it? It's, it's a word of sorrow. I mean, beautiful in that it's rich in emotion. Meryl's in South Africa. She's grieving. Her dad's dying. He's 92. They've been called to the bed to say, look, we, we think there are days. I guess what? She's not really fussed by the warm Durban weather that she can go to the beach or her friends that she can go and have lunch with. She is deeply moved by the sorrow. I can hear it in her voice as she should because she realizes something is about to change. A parent grieves. A couple of months ago, a friend of ours stood up over here. Her daughter took her own life about six months ago or a year. I didn't know Karen was going to be honest with you because I've not heard her ever be honest in a public setting. And we had to walk her through her grief. It's a big word. It's a deep word. And, and why is it such a big word? Because a parent understands that if a series of decisions are followed through with, it ends up with trauma. And God is a God of life and a God of light. And so what Paul does is he enumerates some things that lead to grieving the Holy Spirit. Not truthful. It means, and I played with D's, so forgive me, that's just my thing. Uh, don't, don't deceive. Anger, don't destroy. Uh, bitterness, it does damage. Sexual immorality, desire, impurity, dirty, greed, dollars, language, to degrade others. These are things, dear friends, in which God the Holy Spirit says, 
you must understand, I grieve if you go down this pathway because I know where it ends up. I was at Jesse's funeral. I stood as the coffin went down, her series of decisions, and I say this with no disrespect, the story is complicated. But the grief Karen went through because she saw what unfolded, that's the grief our Heavenly Father feels when we say yes to those things. Again, oh, lies don't matter. Sam Albury has got a book, Does God Really Care Who I Sleep With? Yes, he does. Why? Because he's a cosmic killjoy? No, because he knows where it ends up. An article in an Australian newspaper I read this morning documented the number of people who come from the adult porn industry who've taken their lives in the last while. Is there a heavenly father who's grieving? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because that is where it ends up. Be true to yourself is not the yardstick for virtue. Obedience is the yardstick for virtue. Sexual immorality, let me just touch on it and then I'll close with a story. Folk, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, the only place for sexual intimacy is between a husband and a wife in a covenantal committed relationship. That's it. It's beautiful. It's an adventure. It's a discovery. It's a virtue. And from the time that God created Adam and Eve and the ultimate introduction to intimacy, where I think the angels watched curiously because they'd never seen intimacy between a man and a woman before, I think they must have been mesmerized like, dang, dude, I didn't know that happens. <laughs> All the way to the end when Jesus takes his bride to be with him. The story is consistent. A man and a woman in covenant relationship. Why? Because God grieves. He knows what the outcome is in a promiscuous life. It's not free. It's not cheap. It's not without consequence. Speak to any therapist. But it's just a lie. Does God really care who's Intimate parts I touch? Oh, yes, he does. They're not yours to touch. God grieves. Why? Because in his created order, he's created a new world, a world of intimacy between a husband and a wife in covenantal union. But Chris, but, 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 you know, if, if, if they're happy, is that not okay? Just think that thought through philosophically. Take it all the way down the road. Or to keep taking it. And I think you'll be philosophically surprised where you will have to end up. The father grieves, dear friends, anything that damages his kids. Anything, anything. Does deception, I read an article in the same Aussie paper of a woman who writes with great honesty that her and her husband went into an open relationship and he's had multiple partners as has she and her conclusion is I am so empty and I'm so deeply jealous to the point of rage 
because deception kills. To think I'm sitting at home and my husband is with some other woman somewhere else is not the ultimate sense of happiness, but high destruction, anger. And so I can go on and so I can go on. I hope you hear my father's heart because none of these are cheap. All of this costs. Now the joy, dear friends, is the gospel. That when we have committed our lives, and, and even just that last one, I was thinking about it, you know, uh, how there is a, and can be a generation in which derogatory comments about those around us is funny. It's not funny. If I make jokes about my big butt, because I have got one, I tried on a pair of Ruka pants to wear tonight and they wouldn't close. <laughs> Somehow my butt has found new life. It's like got a... <laughs> It's like, it's like it's been born again, you know. It's like, hang on a second, please, no more creation um, down here. Can we just keep it like simple? Um, well, I had to wear my baggy pants because my slimmer pants didn't fit tonight. Now, I can laugh about it, but when we feel like in the language of humor belittling each other, it's too expensive. It's too costly. We speak words of life. And exhortation doesn't mean we don't have jibes and fun as friends, but the overwhelming lingo franco, the language of friendship is the language of edification and honour and respect and well-being and appreciation, not you suck, you know. And, and I could be far more unkind in that regard. <laughs> Are you with me? There's a story. And the story is that Jesus tells of a dad with two boys. And it's an amazing story because the one boy, the younger boy, comes to his pops against all social protocol and says, Dad, come, I want my half of the inheritance. And uh, his pops very kindly and graciously says to him, I know what's going to happen. You can keep that up for a moment. I know what's going to happen, but I'll let you go. And so he takes his half of the inheritance and what does he do? Sexual immorality, he blows it all on a promiscuous lifestyle because everyone knows that's what makes you happy. Only it doesn't. Impurity, the stain of his sin so impacted him that he ended up literally with the pigs. It's a great metaphor. It's not free. Dollars took all that was his, he thought, actually stealing from his dad because culture said you get your inheritance once your pops dies. There it is. And so often, and I'll come back to him, so often we, we make much of the younger brother, but the older brother, he's there. Yeah. How are you, boy? Great. No, he wasn't. He was pissed off. He's lying. But lies don't really matter, do they? He's angry. Dad, how dare you give the boy the lamb, the ring, the robe, the sandals? How dare you do that? Oh, well, a bit of anger, you know. Anger's fine. I, I have an anger thing, so I just blow it and it doesn't really matter. No, it does really matter because it grieves the heart of God. He's bitter. You've screwed me over. See, folks, these are all things that grieve God, as our heavenly Father, because they have consequence. 
Does that make sense to you? But there's a little verse in this story, and that's Luke chapter 15. It says, but when he came to his senses, there it is. But when the boy in the pigsty came to his senses, you see, that was his hope. The brother, older brother never came to his senses. His dad invited him, come on, let's celebrate. He was lost, now he's found. Come on, the boy's come home. And he stormed off onto a hill by himself, embittered, enraged, damaged by the whole story. The one brother came to his senses, the other brother did not. We're gonna come to worship. I hope it hasn't been too harsh tonight. That was not my intention. But I want us I want to invite us into this time of worship. I'll clear all my stuff off here. And I want to ask you to come to your senses as I ask of myself. What are the things, maybe, that God the Holy Spirit is highlighting that are quenching the fire of God in your young chests? That once you were zealous, not so much. Once you were passionate, not so much. Or, and, what are the things that grieve God's heart? When you look up to heaven, you find the grace of a loving Father. The picture I have of the Father is He sits on the patio every day on His rocking chair like the old farm house. And every day when the bus comes up and drops people nearby, He gets up and He leans on His tippy toes. Is my boy there? And once again, He would sag quietly into His own rocking chair with His coffee by His side. Not today, my boy's not coming home. Not today. Eagerly anticipating, not filled with wretchedness and anger, the Father is, but with grace and forgiveness. But one day, as was His custom, He got off His rocking chair And he stood on his tippy toes looking out over the patio and the bus dropped people off and then went past in this lonely country road. And there was a huddled old person. He felt they were old because of the way they walked. They were quite stooped. But then the gait, the manner of walking of the robed person looked slightly familiar. And he wondered again, is this my boy? And then he realized behind the clutter of a life of sin, his boy was hidden, shrouded by his own disobedience and he ran with all of his might. His sandals were kicked off. He grabbed his son. He held him smelling the pig poo. And he wept as his son wept. Dad, I'm not worthy even to work with the servants, but you are my son. Come and he took a ring off his finger and he got one of his favorite robes, put a new pair of sandals on his feet and brought out the lamb that was to be slain or sacrificed to be eaten. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the hope of this. But it only happens when we come to our senses. God, I'm sorry. I've used all sorts of crappy excuses. I've convinced myself of what I've done 
as your spirit's fire just quietly dimmed until it ultimately was a dying coal. Only a few embers left. Come into a gathering space or hang with Christians and I'm distasted. I, I hate this. They're talking about Jesus and joy and love and I think this is disgusting. But the father gets up off the patio and he runs towards you to pick you up and to give you a new coat and new sandals. Because even though you might have quenched his fire, there is fire to be given. Even though you may have grieved his bruised fatherly soul, there is grace to be given. Come to your senses. Would you close your eyes with me, please? Thank you for listening to the Genesis Costa Mesa podcast. To find more information about our community, feel free to visit our website, www.genesiscostamesa.com or find us on social media at Genesis Costa Mesa.